0: So today is the sixth week in our sola series, our series on the five solas of the Reformation. The reason there are six weeks is we had an introduction and we talked about what the Reformation is and who the Reformers were and why it happened, and then we, we've been covering the different elements of, of the solas, and we started off with sola gratia, which is by grace alone. And we moved on to sola fide, which is by faith alone. That is, we're saved only by grace. We're saved only by faith. Finally, we looked at what the object of our faith is, the person of Jesus. And then we looked at how scripture is the only thing that matters, sola scripture. It's, it's the only way that we know clearly, succinctly, and perfectly what the plan of salvation is for our life. And so today we land on the last of the five solas you can arrange them in different ways you don't have to cover them in these particular in this particular order but the reason i did so is that all of the previous solas describe the nature of our salvation and today we're going to be looking at uh not not the means and not the manner of but rather the motivation for so earlier we looked in sola gratia and sola fide that by grace we're saved and by faith we're saved and that's how we're saved. That's the manner of our salvation. But today we're going to be looking at why. Why are we saved? What What's the reason behind all of this? This is where we see the God-exalting aspect of the gospel, that it's not just enough to believe that Jesus came and died on a cross and that's, you know, some good information and to agree or disagree with that, but rather that the gospel itself is, has been established and worked out by god himself to bring glory to his name and so i'm going to use the word glory but that means a lot of different things that means worship means honor means adoration like we adore something we sang that this morning means respect It means praise it means blessing means attention being present to the Lord, the reason we have a time of rest every week is not to just stop working, but rather to turn in, an, in a very purposeful way to God and, and to be with Him. And so if you want to grow as a worshiper this morning, you, you, you say, I don't really like worshiping. I don't really see the point of singing. I don't really see the point of raising my hands during worship or shouting or clapping. I don't really see the point in sacrificing all of my life, not just singing, but rather worshiping with everything in my life. If you are having difficulty with that, then I would encourage you to always pay attention when I speak, but especially this morning. So why were we created? Well, Genesis, uh, definitely not uh, chapter 6. Sometimes you make errors when you're putting together PowerPoints. Genesis, God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And so here God is creating things. He's, he's forming. So before Genesis one, one in the beginning, God. Okay. Now before that, jump off the page to the left. If you're reading from left to right, go to the left off the page before in the beginning. Well, what happened in the beginning? There was God and he was there. And so in the beginning, God speaks, there's light. He starts forming the worlds. He separates the light from the you know, darkness and night and day and night. And there's just all this movement going on. The spirit's hovering over the earth and there's darkness and God's creating and forming and stuff. And he makes some, some people. He makes some humans and he makes them in his image. He doesn't make them like he made the animals or the birds or the fish. They just came about. They they came from the earth, literally. And he just says, but concerning men, I'm going to make them in my likeness and in my image. And so God takes stock of what has happened, just like you might taste your food after you get done cooking or look at your painting when you're finished or sit on a chair that you've just made uh, to test it out. God sees his creation and he says that is good. And after he gets done making man, he says that it's very good. And so the Westminster confession, the shorter catechism question number one begins with the question, what is the chief end of man? Um, The The chief end doesn't mean like what happens at the end of man. It it rather means what's the purpose? Like if I'm doing something to, we say in English, to this outcome or to this end, it means what is the purpose of that thing's existence? So the, the answer is that man's chief end is to glorify God that means to bring Him glory, to give Him worship, and to enjoy Him forever. And it's my, it's my purpose this morning to convince you that those are not two things, but those are one thing. Okay? And, and we're going to see that, and, and hopefully I'm going to make that clear. We were created to worship God and to enjoy Him, and you cannot worship God without enjoying Him. There's no, there's no way to do so. We were created to behold him. We were created to have fellowship with him. Adam and Eve, they were placed by God in this garden. And it said that God would come down in the cool of the day. Literally, that word means the spirit or the mist or the cool of the day. When when the day's ending and Adam and Eve are resting from their, you know, running around in the garden and picking fruit or whatever they did. And God comes down and he spends time and he walks and talks with Adam. And so he is is there's this fellowship that existed between God and man. And so if if we know that our chief end is to enjoy God, then why is there suffering in the world? Well, many of us know or have some idea of what happened. The Bible says that Adam and Eve sinned and broke the law that God gave them. And so what happened in their breaking of the law, that law in, in its breaking, also broke fellowship and also broke communion. They were literally put out of communion. X, X is Latin root for out of. And they were literally excommunicated from the garden. They were put out of the garden. And the place where f- the fellowship with God, the communion, the, the friendship, the enjoyment, the relationship, that was that was done. That was over. And death entered into the world and sin entered into the world. Most of us can take a look at the news today and we're easily convinced of the authenticity of the Bible's claim that there definitely was a problem that entered in. We know things are not the way they should be. So if that's the case, we all know that Christianity says that you can be saved. Well, what does saved mean? And why are we saved? First question I've got, is it, are we saved because we deserved it? Well, we've looked in this series that we certainly did not deserve it. We, we didn't deserve it at all. The whole point of the gospel is that we don't deserve redemption. When we broke fellowship with him, we broke fellowship and we were warped and, and sin entered into our hearts. And it has never been the same since. We were dead in our manifold trespasses. Manifold means many types or many kinds trespasses, another word for it is grievances, that there are offenses or thefts against God and his nature, literally assaults against God, warring against God. And so we certainly didn't deserve it. But, okay, so we know we didn't deserve it. Maybe we can patch things up. Did we earn it? I I think it's clear that we didn't earn it. The Bible makes it plain that we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. He doesn't love us because we achieve a certain number of spiritual victories or read our Bible a certain number of hours in the day. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it, and we can't earn it. Is it because God loves us? Is that why he saves us? Yes, he does love us. That is true. In the song that we sing often, at this church, how great the Father's love for us, there's this line that says, what should I gain from his reward? And the the question that the singer poses is then answered in the next line. I cannot give an answer. There would be no gospel at all and no music at all if the line was, what should I gain from his reward? Eh, I don't know, maybe about half of it because I've been a good person this week. You know that the, there would be no music at all if we could say, "Well, I should probably gain about half of what Jesus purchased on the cross maybe eh, maybe like a fourth of it just because you know I, I did some bad things this week, but I was pretty good I didn't kill anyone didn't. the point is of the, the point of the gospel is that there would be no gospel if we could earn it or if we deserved it. So, why the question is the great mystery of our faith is why should I have been the object of his mercy and affection? Why should I have experienced this? And so, we've been looking at the fact that God loves us in this series. God loves fallen humanity, he wants to redeem it. And each element of the gospel is a gift. What happens when you love someone? You give them gifts at Christmas. I like Christmas at our house because we always get a ridiculous amount of gifts, and most of the time, they're somewhat silly. And um, we, if you've heard any stories from our family, you might have heard of The Great Shirt Christmas <laughs> in which my dad went to this store, and they were uh, going out of business. And so everything was like, you know, only 10% of what it was supposed to cost. And I've, I've got like four or five different shirts in my room that I never wear just because... <laughs> anyway so but the gifts were given those that were the ridiculous number of gifts were were extremely lavishing they were given freely and so that tells something about the father's love in in an earthly father how much more the the uncreated eternal perfectly loving perfectly just absolutely wonderful God father God who from whom all things came into being, how much more does he want to give gifts to his creation? And so we've been looking at each element of this series is a gift from God and those gifts tell of his love. The whole nature of the gospel is that the father's love was put on display on the cross and the gift of God was literally himself. We saw that we're saved only by grace. It's freely given. It's not something you earn. So that's the nature of the gospel. It's, it's a way to describe the gospel. It's free. Faith is the vehicle of the gospel. It's, it's the way that it actually becomes ours. When we believe that what the Bible says is true about Jesus, the Bible says that if we believe, confess with our mouth, that we will be saved. It's faith. And that faith is given to us by God. That faith that we have, the ability to believe in the truth of the gospel that's given to us. And so Jesus is, we see him as the object. God, the father gave his son to the world. John 3, 16. He gave his son to the world. He, without Jesus, grace and faith would be, would be nothing. Just the ability to receive freely from God something without having the sufficient payment for our sins on the cross being taken care of. If we don't have the object of our faith, we don't have any of our faith. And finally, last week we looked at scripture. It's the communication of the gospel. It's how we come to hear about it. Scripture and hopefully some anointed preaching to go with it. So it's not by works. It's it's by faith alone that we're saved. It's by faith alone in Christ alone that we're saved. And the only way that we know the truth of these things is the scripture, and so here, just as a minute ago, I urged you to jump left off of genesis one one we're going to do that again. If you can imagine a time where there's nothing, the world doesn't exist, the stars aren't there, the planets are not moving there's there's nothing going on, there's nothing that exists it's just god and the The scriptures teach that God existed in all eternity in perfect communion. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit—they each love each other and have fellowship and friendship. It's the uh, it's the divine Trinity that has fullness of joy, fullness of delight, and there's just love, and they they love each other, and they're self giving and self serving, and so this joy and this love erupts into creation. Genesis one one takes place in the context of God loving and wanting to show people who he is wanting to create beings who would capture his glory and be able to experience who he is. And so all of this love is self-directed in that God does love God, but it's also other focused. Okay. So it's, it, it is a real love. It's not just some selfish me kind of, you know, taking care of my own stuff, my own needs or anything like that. It's a righteous love and it's a, it's a, it's a, uh self or self uh other other focused love and so if you want some clarity in that proverbs 8 is a great place to turn it says that the father and the son were living together at the beginning of creation and it's just a beautiful passage but when we think of god's love for us we first have to think of god's love for himself and that might sound like a new concept to you this morning it might sound like an even strange concept but i'm I'm certain that I'll prove it to you by the end of the day. The Father loves the Son. John 3:35. Jesus is speaking and he says, "The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand." John 5:20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. So the Father God, he loves Jesus, and we know that human fathers take delight in their children. How much more the perfect father the one who has never flawed it says literally as we said in the creed this morning light from light it says that that god wraps himself in light what happens when you wrap yourself with something you you're you're putting a shadow around something that's brighter the the veil that was over moses's face when he was sh- his face was shining in glory that's what it means jesus is or the Father is is taking light, and that is what is covering himself so that when we look at God, we don't just vaporize. That's the, who this God is. He's perfect. There's no sin in him. There's no evil in God. And so this doesn't even scratch the surface. When we look at Mark Violet and his little son, Max, when you look at that and you see how much Mark loves Max, that doesn't even pale in comparison to how much the eternal father loves the eternal son. And it never can because the father and his love is eternal and, and infinite and the son and his ability to receive that love and ability re- to return that love is infinite and eternal. That's amazing. And so this is the love that exists and that God is, this is the context in which we're cre- being created and redeemed. And the son also loves the father. John fourteen thirty one. Jesus speaking again, But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. Jesus perfectly obeyed the will of the Father at every moment of his life. He never broke any element of the law, and not only that, but he also demonstrated the nature of the Father. Okay, what does it mean to demonstrate the nature of the Father? John 17, 24. For you love me, speaking to his Father, Jesus is praying, before the foundation of the world. In John 17, he's, he, which we're going to get to in a moment, he is he's praying to the Father, and he's saying, I have declared your name. What does it mean for Jesus to declare the name of the Father? It means that by Jesus' actions, by his speaking, his teaching, his demonstration of miracles, his anointed preaching, his uh, run-ins with the legalistic religious system of the day. In everything that he did and in everything that he said, Jesus perfectly demonstrated the nature of the Father. When you see Jesus opening blind eyes, that's what the Father is doing. Okay. When you see Jesus opening deaf ears, that's what the Father wants to do. That, that's what the Father is about. When you see Jesus stooping and and picking up uh, beggars who are blind and who are broken and who have nothing, and when you see the eternal Son of God come down and pick those people up, that's what the Father is like. And so the Son does perfectly what the Father wants him to do, and not only that— has made it clear to humanity through the Gospels what God is like. All of our notions of God not being loving need to be repented of, and we need to turn to see Jesus and begin to see Him for who He is and begin to look at Jesus and say God is exactly like His Son because Jesus said to His disciples, if you've seen me, if you've taken a look at Jesus, you know what the Father's like. So what does that have to do with glory? God's glory and his love are the same thing. The first, there's two elements. They're really the same thing. The first element is God's love for himself is his commitment to do all things necessary to bring glory to his name, to each person in the Godhead. The father has sent the son into the world. The son perfectly obeyed. The the spirit was their communication line while Jesus was here on the earth and Jesus has established his church. The spirit is preparing the bride and Jesus is one day going to return to this earth and give the kingdom. He's going to hand it over to his father. And that is what this is all about. And God's love for himself overflows into his love for us. The second element is God's love for us which is an overflow of his love for his own name, is his commitment to do all things necessary to give to us what is deeply and infinitely satisfying, and that is himself. And at this point, here's where you begin to test whether or not you have rebellion in your heart. If you think it's ridiculous for God to seek his own glory, then that means that your heart is still in rebellion to him. If that sounds at all wrong to you, that it's okay for God to love himself and want to magnify himself, then you haven't seen who he is yet, and he's offering you a chance to see him. Glory and love. There is no confusion or no difficulty in the heart of God to want you to experience his love and for his name to be glorified. And whether, uh, whether he wants for you to glorify him or to receive his love, that is the same thing. When you receive his love, you begin to worship. You begin to experience who he is. And so glorifying God is the point of his love. John 5.20. We, we looked at this a second ago, but we only looked at the first part. I wish you could have been there in my room yesterday as I was mulling over this content. Uh, I, the first time I saw this... I laughed. The second time I saw this, when I came back to it again, I cried. The third time I went into prayer for you guys that you would get it this morning. Because when you see this, it just, I mean, it just begins to pop up everywhere in the scripture. You're going to be ruined forever. You're going to see the glory of God in, in the scripture everywhere you go. John five twenty. we looked at the first half for the father loves the son and shows him all things that he is doing. What is he talking about there? He's talking about he's doing a miracle. He just did a miracle and he's ju- he's giving the justification for why he does signs and wonders and miracles. And then the second half that we didn't look at. And the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. The point of Jesus doing miracles is so that you will marvel. What does marvel mean? It means to be awestruck. It means to be full of wonder. It means to be caught off guard with the goodness of God. It means to be overcome with how wonderfully loving he is. Words fail to even be able to describe what he's talking about. He wants you to marvel at the demonstration of who God is. Ephesians 1, 5 through 5-6, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. The gospel is right there in both of those sentences. This, the last part is freely bestowed. That's grace. It's faith in Jesus Christ. In the first part of that sentence, we were predestined. And what does it say? It, predestined means that God chose us to be redeemed and he chose us from eternity past There was never a time if you come to know the glory of Jesus in the gospel, repent and believe and turn to him in faith that proves that there was never a time that God did not love you in love. He predestined us to adoption and, and that means we get to be children of God. We're adopted into the family of God. I mean, what is, I mean, we don't even get that. And so, When I saw that yesterday, I just, it was, I was, I was a wreck. That brings us to our main text today, John 17. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. This is, as we mentioned before, this is Jesus's prayer right before he's about to go to the cross. And I'm just going to comment after we read each verse. We're going to be in John 17 verses 1 through 5. Jesus is The context here is that Jesus is talking to his disciples. And after it says, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Now, what is he doing here? He's praying. He's praying to the father and he's asking the father to glorify him. What does that mean verse 2 Even as you gave him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life Verse 2 says something about eternal life. Most of us believe that eternal life is not going to hell, but rather going to heaven. And that's true. It is about that. It is about not not being punished forever and ever, but there's more to it than just getting out of hell verse 3 it says this is eternal life that you that they may know you the only true god and Jesus Christ whom you have sent eternal life is not just about getting into heaven it's about knowing god before we see who jesus is we don't know god we have no fellowship with him and before we repent and believe in the gospel there's no way for us to understand who God is. Verse four, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Verse four means that Jesus, again, as we mentioned before, he demonstrated the nature of the father. He accomplished the work. Okay, now here's a, here's a really hard question. Jesus, has not been crucified on the cross in this chapter. He has just taught his disciples some last stuff. He knows where he's going, and he's praying to the Father in verse 1 here and in verse 5. He's asking the Father to begin the crucifixion sequence, the sequence that's going to lead to his death. And so what's happening in verse 4? He's saying, I have accomplished the work that you have sent me to do. What work was that? That work was demonstrating the nature of the Father, that the Father loves you and wants you to be reconciled to Him. That's the work that Jesus was sent to do. Now, I'm not at all saying that the cross wasn't important or that the cross wasn't the end goal, but just as important as the cross was was the demonstration of what the Father, what His relationship was towards sinners and sick people, and people who don't have it right and all together and people who've got it, you know, completely wrong and all screwed up. Jesus said that I didn't come for the healthy, but I came for the sick. And so the cross is the ultimate expression of the desire of the father to be reconciled to his creation. But all of the things that led up to the cross were just as important and were just as necessary so that it was perfectly clear that we did not miss it. It wasn't that Jesus just had to die and, you know, experience a lot of pain. That pain was penalty for our sins. But in the midst of all of that, it's done in the context of the father wants you to be redeemed and he's made a way for you to be redeemed. Verse five, this is Jesus's desire. He says, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He's asking the Father to begin the crucifixion sequence. This is the desire of Jesus. The desire of Jesus at this moment is, I want these people who have sinned. I want them back. Father, it's time. Let's do this. That's what his desire is. Jesus was not like avoiding the cross and like, oh, I really don't want to do that. It's on my task list. But if I could, maybe I'll just hit delay on that a little longer. No, Jesus earnestly desired and wanted you back. And that's what the cross is all about. If you want, you can skip to verse 22. Jesus is continuing to pray and he says, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. And here right in these last verses is when we begin to see this union between glorifying God, receiving his love, glorifying, receiving back and forth. It's a, it's a, it's an exchange that takes place. Verse 23, I in them, Jesus is saying, I'm going to be in them and the father you are in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That means the Father loves you like He loves the the Son. The Father loves you with the same love, in the same manner, and the same quality, that He loves the Son. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me, before the foundation of the world. This is the heart of Jesus before the cross. He's asking his father to glorify himself and that glorification is the payment on the cross. These are the emotions of God. He longs for you. He wants you back. He wants you to come and realize how good he is. He wants you to have fellowship with him and he has pulled out all the stops to make this possible. He has given everything. The Father's greatest object of desire and love and pleasure was His Son, and He handed over His Son for us. These are the emotions of God. He longs for and desires you to come back to Him. So my plea with you this morning as we begin to prepare to take communion, the communion that we take this morning is a sign of our fellowship with God, and that fellowship is available to you if you do not know God this morning and you do not trust in Jesus, that fellowship is available. If you give your life to him, he's promised to give you everything. You you don't you don't have everything in this life. You you don't have everything that you need. You don't have supremely satisfying joy. And the promise that Jesus gives you if you become his disciple is I will be with you always. The promise of the gospel is that you get God. It's not just about getting out of hell. It's not just about going to heaven. You get Jesus forever. And he becomes for you the supremely satisfying joy. And everything else in life finds its place in submission to him. And he, is, he, he promises to be with you by the Spirit every moment. His desire, verse 24, is, Father, my desire... For the ones that you've given me that they would be with me where I am. He wants you to be with him. No one in this world wants you. Your parents, they've they've left you, the our divorced families, our orphans, that we, we have friendships that are broken. We have we have a society where the, the Republicans hate the Democrats and the, the gays hate the straights and the straights hate the gays and the blacks hate the whites. In this world you don't find love and Jesus is saying to you if you find me, I want you. If you see who I am, I want you. If you, can, if you can just turn from your sin and believe in the gospel and trust me, I'll be everything for you. I want you. No one in this world wants us, and God is saying he wants you. Father, we thank you for your amazing display on the cross that you did not even spare your son, that you have provided for us eternal joy, that we know your word and that we are beginning to see just how good you are. Father, we ask you that you would convince us of the truth of the claims of the gospel more and more each day, that we would see Jesus as the supremely satisfying source of joy, that we would no longer move to different things, social networks and friendships and drugs and illegal things and all of this stuff that we're trying to fill our desire for, for joy that you put in us, that we would see that Jesus is the only thing that satisfies. God, we ask you that you would make it clear to our hearts that you love us, that you want us, and that that we don't just have to give up sin that we get you in exchange that you are better god we ask you that you would make it plain we ask you that you would make these things clear in our hearts that we would turn to you in faith jesus name we pray